Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming from Moses Lake today. Um, beautiful, hot, sunny day in Moses Lake. It's supposed to be over 100 today. I love our summers. Um, you can always pretty much guarantee the end of July and the first of August, it's gonna we're gonna have a couple weeks of 100 degree weather, and I love that. I I I, I love being in 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 the Columbia Basin, and it, for those of you that are watching from another state or another area, realize that Washington is not all about rain. Um, we actually live in a desert in in the middle of Moses Lake, so and I love it. So. Uh, today, we have um, James from the Free Market Medical Association, and I had a lot of questions over the weekend, and James was one of them. James sent me a note um, about the most recent executive order that um, um, President Trump signed, and it was executive order to lower prescription drug prices specifically, and James will get more into the details of it, specifically on insulin and epinephrine, which has been hot buttons for quite a while now. Um, there's four different components of this executive order, and I've had a few different people uh, reach out to me and thought what I wanted to know my thoughts, and I told them to stay tuned for, for our podcast because uh, we're going to dive into it. Um, so, James, uh, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'll just let you know, you're our first guest that's been on three times. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, how important you are to us, and, and really the reason why is because, uh, you know, we just think alike. You know, I wrote a book called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare, and you can see it right there behind us. Uh, Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare, and um, How to Fix It. And basically one of the fixes is a free market system, and we'll be talking about free markets today. And, um, and of course, in medicine, I believe that free markets are just as important um, as as they are in any industry. So um, that's why you've been on because we follow a lot of the same principles when it comes to economics, and that includes in um, uh, medic medicine also. So so thanks for being on, James. Again, and welcome to our show. What what do you know about this executive order? Um, go ahead and and tell us some of the details that you know about it. Well, going going back to what you said at the beginning, I reached out to you because I respect your opinion as an independent pharmacist who believes in these principles and a valued valued uh, member of the Free Market Medical Association. So I'm not an expert in uh, pharmacy or insurance, but you know I try to keep up to date on everything that's going on in the world of healthcare and try to navigate and figure out what this means for from a free market perspective. And my initial uh, thoughts on these executive orders are that this is <clears throat> generally a way for the government to uh, try to move in a little more free market direction from the perspective of the government as a buyer for healthcare, because most of these executive orders, I think all of these executive orders really center around uh, the Medicare system and the prices that the government is paying for prescription drugs. Right. And, and that's kind of what I see too. Um, and in some ways that's kind of a little bit unfortunate because I, I wish that it would, you know, encompass more of 
you know, not just the Medicare um, part of it. And I wish that, from what I understand from this executive order, is it's mostly on insulin and epinephrine. I think those are mostly because they've been in the news so much lately with with hot buttons on on pricing. So I think that's what this uh, is. That true? Is it? Do you see this just applies to insulin and epinephrine? Is that correct? Well, two of the executive orders are primarily focused on insulin and epinephrine. One is the one that allows states to reimport drugs from other countries, I guess based on the, the idea that a lot of these drugs are cheaper in Canada and other places, which is not necessarily the case anymore. And of course, you've pointed out on multiple occasions that really uh, insul- the price of insulin in, in a free market is really not that expensive. A lot of the reason why we have high prices of insulin is based on this lack of transparency that we have that's created by these pharmacy benefit managers that have directed health plans to, uh, to, to reach for or to search out the name brand uh, pharma- pharmaceuticals versus the generic brands. Yeah, and, and not just that with insulin, but, um, you know, our, our first episode, we, we, we have to go dive even deeper. Um, the insulins usually they're talking about are called designer insulins. And there's multiple ones, long-acting, fast-acting, and those are the ones that are super expensive. And realize that since 1983, we have had insulin uh, from Eli Lilly, which is the same insulin our body makes up. Um, and you can get it over the counter, actually. And that's been available since 1983. If you watch our very first episode, uh, I had my brother on, and his son is a type 1 diabetic and they use insulin, or he uses insulin from from that source. It's 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 human insulin. It's through D, recombinant DNA technology. It's it's an exact copy of what our bodies are for human R and human N is longer acting. And um, he gets those insulins for twenty five dollars a vial. So these new designer insulins are hundreds and hundreds of dollars a vial. Um, and I know I'm going to get some pushback from this, but I don't believe they're necessarily any better. Um, I don't believe diabetes can be controlled without proper diet and exercise, type 1, type 2 alike. If you do not control what you eat, no matter what drugs you're on, you will not control your diabetes. So these older insulins, actually, you can get them for $25 a vial um, at Walmart. It's really... The reason they're so cheap is because they're over-the-counter and there's a free market at work. Mostly insurance companies don't buy them or don't pay for them because they're not prescription. So they're over-the-counter. So anybody can go into Walmart. And they, sometimes, you, Unfortunately, some pharmacists aren't educated enough on this anymore. So when you ask them for over-the-counter insulin, they some of them don't even understand it. They're like, oh, really? You can get over-the-counter. Yes. Humulin in, humulin R. There's also a Novolin R, Novolin in. Look at the vial. It says, it doesn't say anything about a legend drug. It is an over-the-counter drug. You can get it over-the-counter. When they first came out, the government didn't want to limit access to type 1, for type 1 diabetes. So they made it very accessible so it's not a prescription only. And um, so people usually pay cash for it. Well, this is a perfect example of why is it $25 a vial? Because 
the free market's at work. There's no third party paying for a drug. Um, it has to be a lot less expensive because the consumer's actually paying for it. So that's a little backstory there um, on the price of insulin. It's the designer insulins that are expensive, and that's because they're prescription only. Yeah, and a lot of the problems that we have in the prescription drug world are just the same as the ones we have in the you know cost of medical care in general. It's just in a different arena because of insurance. The third-party payer system has allowed these pharmacy benefit managers to come in as middlemen in a non-transparent way, sell their quote value to insurance plans, primarily employers, as a way to you know get lower prescription drug prices, and them having that power then allows them to negotiate with an insurance company to essentially push the prices of drugs higher and higher so they can offer these quote these discounts or what they, they call rebates uh, to, that they claim that they're passing along to the employers, but in fact they're you know pocketing most of that money. So I think that one of the biggest things that this executive order does is that it exposes or sheds more light on that problem that pharmacy benefit managers are getting these kickbacks basically. And so one of the executive orders is basically saying that the government or Medicare will not um, allow these uh, pharmacy benefit managers to take these kickbacks that they're supposed to pass those along to the patients. Yeah, I see that now. You know, um, I'm just not sure how they're going to work that. I'm not sure that's how, how that's going to work on the on the retail consumer side, um, because I, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how the details work out. Um, well, that, as in most cases, a lot of these executive orders are just um, they don't really have any teeth. At least initially, what this is doing is is basically putting the the drug companies, the PBMs on notice saying that if you don't come up with a better alternative by August the 26th, I think is the date, then they will move forward with this this plan. So it kind of remains to be seen how this will all shake out. Yeah, it does. And I, I think you're right, James, is that at least this brings this topic up front and it brings it to the limelight. And people don't realize that in healthcare, mostly because most patients don't pay the bill directly, there's a lot of crooked stuff going on in between insurance companies and um, hospitals um, and and payers alike because because the consumer's not in control of pricing or um, you know, things can, the pricing can go out of control. Now, there's a great video called um, Adam Ruins Everything about the pricing of healthcare. And it's basically what you've been talking about is that, you know, hospitals, um, and we can, we can put drug companies in there, um, you know, put whatever you want in there. They can charge. So they, they go to a PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager. That's what a PBM is. Uh, the drug company does and says, hey, if you put our drug on formulary, um, look, at, it's $1,000, but if you put it on formulary, we'll give you a rebate of $500. See, you save 50%. And it's like, whoa, everybody wins. When in reality, the drug should have been $100 in the first place, not even $1,000 or $500. So that's one of the problems with healthcare is it is not transparent because the consumer is not paying the direct bill. You want to um, comment on that, James? 
Right. And we, as we've pointed out in other episodes and other conversations, a lot of times a patient, an individual would save thousands of dollars on a surgery if they paid cash and didn't use their insurance. In the same way, we, we know that if an individual goes to an independent pharmacist like yourself and chooses to pay cash, they could pay hundreds of dollars less for their prescription drugs than if they went to one of the big uh, pharmacies like Walgreens or, or CVS that are basically in bed with the, the pharmacy benefit managers. And in a lot of cases, pharmacists, you know, in the past, especially have had gag clauses with these pharmacy benefit managers where the pharmacist could not tell the, the patient that they could get this, this drug cheaper if they, in fact, didn't use their insurance at all for it. Right. I mean, and that, that alone should be illegal to tell a pharmacist that they can't uh, tell a patient how to save money. Although it just tells you what a racket it is. That's one of the reasons Janet and I decided in 2002, we haven't built any insurance in our pharmacy since 2002. Why is that? Because of things like that. We think that um, we wanted to be ethical with our patients and make sure they got the best deal and the best service at the best price. And I think when a third-party PBM is involved, I don't think that was happening. Now, here's what's really interesting is that most people don't realize um, unless they've been in practice as long as I have, that Medicare has not paid for prescription drugs for that long. When I first got out of pharmacy school, there was the Medicare benefit did not pay. There was Medicare Part A and Medicare Part B. And Medicare Part A paid for hospitalizations. Medicare Part B paid for physicians, um, doctors' visits. And, and there's some other details in there and I, that I don't know necessarily. But there was no prescription drug coverage. So when I got out of pharmacy school, um, I worked for a big uh, chain pharmacy. Um, prices were super competitive. Why? Because over 50% of our market was a cash-paying customer. So you had to be price competitive. So we're talking back then, the average price of a prescription drug was like, you know, this is like in the 90s. The average price of a prescription drug was like, $49 or something. It was less than $50 Well, for a month's supply. Now the average price is, are you ready for this? Over $500. Okay. What, what happened there? Well, in 2006, Medicare Part D was passed. And the Medicare, the D stands for drug, maybe. I don't know. You hear that, but you don't know that because there's no Medicare Part C. So I'm not sure where that comes from. But um, 2006, Medicare Part D comes out. The next year, the price of prescription drugs went up, um, went up 19%. Not a surprise. When all of a sudden, there's a cash market um, and you have to be competitive on prices from the drug company down to the retail pharmacist. Now, all of a sudden, those 50% of your cash customers that were mostly senior citizens on Medicare, now all of a sudden, they don't have to pay for medications. The drug company can raise the price, and the farms can raise the price. And that's exactly what happened. I was so glad I'm not a, I was not a part of that. Jan and I were not billing insurance that time, so we were not an accessory to the crime. And I really believe it is an accessory to the crime when 
the system keeps perpetuating that problem. Um, and so now we are still able to offer the best service at the best price because we don't have to follow those Medicare rules. So we let patients know all the time. I saved a patient. Uh, let's see. I saved a patient 150 bucks yesterday because I told them a 100-day supply was a lot less expensive than a 30-day supply. They were super happy. If I was gagged by a, or limited by a pharmacy benefit manager, I couldn't have done that. I mean, that ought to be, if if people are being told, whether you're a doctor or a pharmacist, that they can't do something because of an insurance company, get liberated, get out of it. I mean, that that's not why we went into medicine or pharmacy. So, um, so let's get more into this detail, um, James, of this executive order. So uh, the 340B clinics and, and pass the price of insulin and epi to consumers. You want to, on the first gag order, or the, I mean the gag order, the first uh, executive order, you want to elaborate on that at all? Uh, the one about the federally qualified health centers? Correct. Yeah. And I can go, um, I want your opinion on it, and then I can go a little bit further into it, because I do know a lot about the 340B um, pricing for drugs. Yeah. Well, from my understanding, I mean, this... I guess all of these things you could look at as a good thing from the standpoint of, you know, yes, we we believe that Medicare has distorted the free market and the government, it basically socialized a large portion of the healthcare system under Medicare. But at the same time, there's some nuance here that, you know, as a taxpayer, I want, you know, if the government's going to be spending money on healthcare, you would like for them to not have corruption and, you know, save as much of the taxpayers, you know, money as possible. And it seems to me like what's been allowed to happen under this um, system for a while is that these clinics can purchase drugs at a low price, and then they can inflate the prices, turn around and sell those at a much higher price. So it seems like that reverses this, that, that problem. Yeah. And I'm not sure yet if it's only on insulin and epi. Um, that's just a start if that's the case. But there's something really needs to be done. Let me give you an example. So a FQHC clinic, they're also known as community health centers, but that does not they're not limited to that. Um, for instance, most public hospitals and, and maybe even private hospitals, I'm not sure, because there's even private pharmacies. If you go through the paperwork, that can be qualified for 340B pricing. And what it is is you get a deep, deep discount on medications. Let me give you an example. So Lantus, the expensive insulin we're talking about that's, you know, 500 some dollars a vial, those 340B clinics, they get it for, guess what? Are you ready? You sitting down? $2. Two bucks. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that essentially is the, federal government price it's the lowest price the federal government can buy at so essentially the federal government's already buying drugs now there's some rebates involved in there and stuff if that pharmacy bills medicaid or medicare they're supposed to not they're supposed to let the government know about that so the pharmacy the the drug manufacturer doesn't get the rebate because they've already got the rebate kind of on the wholesale price but it's very very complicated as are most, most government programs so essentially what's happening is these federally qualified healthcare clinics or 340B pharmacy pricing, um, pharmacies are getting 
cheap prices, but yet when they go to bill a third party, i.e. an insurance company, that it might be my insurance company or it might be whoever's insurance company, they charge them full bore. Um, and, you know, so they're making a lot more margin on it. I don't think that was the original intent. The original intent of these 340B clinics was to help the underserved, help the indigent, and help the um, the uninsured. So here's a good example too. My local hospital, they they buy at at 340, excuse me, 340B pricing. As you guys have been, as you guys have noted, you know, a couple months ago, my son broke his leg, and there was a major expense. Maybe even a minor expense, I will say, because the major expense was the surgery costs. But um, a, an expense was still the drug pricing. And, you know, I'm going to go through that list because they get, they get prices for, you know, on 340B pricing. So really, really inexpensive, yet they're not necessarily passing it on to consumer. I think as a public hospital, and especially I, I don't have any insurance. I pay out of my pocket. I get We get reimbursed through a health sharing ministry. But that's not the point. Um, these hospitals, these clinics should be passing them on to the consumer directly. And that's just not what's happening. So I hope this is not just with insulin and epi. I hope it goes on with all drugs. Um, here's another example. I had a contract to work at a, a, um, a 340B clinic um, once. And it's amazing. I could not believe the pricing. So, I mean, there was literally a... You know, a bottle of a thousand of of Motrin, for instance. Motrin is ibuprofen. The brand name Motrin, because the drug company actually, the brand name was actually less expensive than the generic, because the drug company was basically given away because of government pricing. Um, a bottle of a thousand, eight hundred milligrams. They had to charge something. So you know what they charged? I couldn't believe it. I almost, I almost fainted. One penny. They charged a penny. It just tells you what a racket there is in the system. If there was a true free market, this would not be happening. One person would not pay $500 and the next person pay a penny. That wouldn't happen in a free market. That doesn't happen in a free market, right, James? No, and, and the first thing that happens when you have a business that your customer is the government and the government has you know, supposedly an unlimited amount of resources because they can print Print money. Bring out You're the You're actually going to charge whatever you can get for it. You're not. You really don't have any market uh, restrictions or things that will hold you back from char- overcharging. And then once the government subsidizes a clinic, then you know once in the we've pointed out that the government subsidizes hospitals, you know, by giving them tax benefits all the time. So the the when you subsidize something, you get more of it. And then we see that all over the place in healthcare. Yeah, pricing doesn't stay in check because it just doesn't matter because the consumer is not paying for it. And and what's happening in a lot most cases is that the cost is the the higher prices are being pushed off to the employers for the most part because the employers if if a, a consumer or a patient is not. Uh, Paid if their healthcare is not paid for the government, the next biggest you know place that comes from is out of employers. So employers are getting the shaft for the most part through these uh, plans with pharmacy benefit managers attached to them that they really don't understand the contracts that are involved. Yeah, and I mean one of the things that 
and, and employers are, um, you know, catching on to this. And I know there's some people that the Free Market Medical Association works with um, that uh, really kind of take that PBM out because a lot of people don't realize it. And I know, I, I know this is hard for some people to understand, but um, pharmacy doesn't have to be expensive. Medications don't don't have to be expensive. There are, I I, I can't think most disease states you can treat for less than $200 a month. Yeah, this one, at least from what I'm reading initially, also j just includes primarily insulin and epinephrine, but uh, they're really wanting to open the market and allow states to re-import drugs across borders because the, um, the belief is that drugs are cheaper in Canada. In some cases that that might be true, but I think for the most part, drug companies have kind of figured out how to manage that process you know, where they're not necessarily less expensive. Of course, you're also comparing, we're trying to compare the U.S. to a, you know, a universal healthcare model where the government is imposing some sort of price controls, which we would disagree with that because you don't want to artificially lower the cost of prescription drugs either because you do want you don't want to have shortages of those drugs right right and not only that but you want to have new drugs too and if you and if people can't make money to um you know to do research to get new drugs you're not going to get new drugs yeah i think libertarians have made the case for a long time that the patent system has really caused the prices of drugs to skyrocket i mean there, there's a case to be made that drugs should not have the kinds of patents that that they have uh, currently, but pharmaceutical companies have really abused that patent system and they've been able to repackage and rebrand drugs. And, you know, the concept, I guess, the, the quote, good intention of a patent system is that you will incentivize people to innovate, whereas a lot of these patents nowadays are on things that really have... Uh, no new innovation whatsoever. They just repackage those those drugs. Yeah, some minor change to them, and they can extend their patent out for another ten or fifteen years. Yeah, um, there are so many examples of that in the pharmaceutical industry, and and Janet and I just almost roll our eyes and just laugh when we see a, another drug that is essentially a copy. You know, they they. You know, they change it. Paxil's a good one. Paxil's an antidepressant. When it was going off patent, they made a Paxil slow release formulation. It's like, well, that's interesting because um, Paxil's already once a day dosing. So, and the new, the slow release was once a day dosing. It's like, wait a minute, that's just nothing. What, what's the difference? But yet, there were, the drug companies were advertising, um, well, look at if you look at the study, the 12.5 milligram um, Paxil slow release has less side effects than the 20 milligram. It doesn't cause as much sedation or much as much drowsiness. Um, that's what the study shows. Of course, the FDA approved this, and it's like, uh, well, of course it does because it's almost half the dose. It's not the SR formulation; it's half the dose. And you'd ask the drug rep that, and they're like, "Well, yeah, you're you're right." So, but yeah, there's a lot of examples of that, James. Now, it's a tough one for me with the patent issue because, um, 
you know, I do believe in the United States Constitution. I wish we followed it more. And there, you know, there is a clause in there that one of Congress's duties is to is to um, protect patents because they wanted to protect science. The founding fathers wrote that in the Constitution because they wanted to protect science. Now, has that been abused? Yes, definitely. Um, I think a patent for a drug from the time it's discovered to the time it can go generic is 15 years. Um, one of the issues we have with that, too, is they always get patent extensions for whatever reason with the new dose or new diagnosis that it's um, you know indicated for but also they um, um, you know what will happen too is they the drug companies are notorious for when that drug's about ready to go to generic a generic company will start making it or they're gonna make it the drug company buys that generic company and essentially the price doesn't go down now when multiple generics are start start being made it does the price does go down but here's one of the things you see in the drug industry is a lot of times once that drug goes generic it's not prescribed anymore why is that the drug companies don't make any money um so they go on to their next drug that was kind of like it but a little bit different and they start promoting that one to the doctors so then the generic's not used anymore and uh, that's why prescription drugs do not have to be expensive if we use generics, but we usually don't because the drug companies don't promote generics. And then unfortunately, most, I'm not going to say most, but a lot of doctors don't prescribe them anymore because that's not what they're being told in their office by drug companies. So, I mean, going back to what you and I have talked about, and this is kind of off you know, topic from necessarily the, from a healthcare system, but yet again, it's not. It's like how many drugs do are manufactured that, address chronic disease that could be corrected through lifestyle changes. I feel like if the incentive wasn't there from, you know, for the government or insurance companies to pay for all these, you know, chronic disease type uh, uh, problems that people have, people might have an incentive to take charge of their own personal health and their lifestyle a little bit more. And we would only need in, a, in, a, in that kind of market system, we would need pharmace, pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs more for acute issues rather than all these uh, chronic disease problems that we have. Yeah, and, and uh, it's always on topic. On, the, on, on our radio show podcast, we always talk about health and wellness. And, and one thing, our major goal with this radio show is to educate and empower consumers. And you're exactly right, James, and thank you for bringing it up. Most drugs for chronic disease... If people change their lifestyle, i.e. diet and exercise, they wouldn't need them. I mean, just go down the list. Blood pressure medications, cholesterol <laughs> medications. Um, you know, and I know I'm, I might get some pushback from this, but antidepressants. Antidepressants are way overused, um, in my opinion. And if you eat right and you exercise, um, you might not need an antidepressant. I'll tell you what, the best antidepressant ever invented is exercise. I mean, if, if you if you want to get out of a depressive state, go exercise, and you're just not depressed anymore. It releases a lot of neurotransmitters, um, many other things to help to help uh, support our brains. So well, there's a lot of good science and research now about the connection between your gut and your brain. And so when you have 
gut dysbiosis going on, if you have nutrient deficiencies that you're not because of your diet, those things can affect your mental health for sure. Oh, for sure. And of course, if we don't have a healthy gut, we can't absorb um, our minerals, our nutrients, our vitamins from our food. And of course, that's so I think gonna... there is a connection between yeah. our healthcare system and our food in our food system. For sure. Well, it's it often gets overlooked. Yeah, I mean, it's probably no surprise if you look at, you know, when we kind of started eating processed foods was, you know, post World War Two, you know, in the sixties, and um, you know, sixties and seventies, and that's kind of when chronic disease started. You talk to physicians that if they were still practicing um, now, that practice in the sixties. And, and you ask them what their major, what they dealt with. It's like, oh, you know, I had a 13-year-old that came in with a broken arm. Or I had, you know, it was mostly acute stuff. It wasn't chronic stuff. And it wasn't lifestyle-related stuff necessarily. Uh, and that's what we've had. And, and you're, I think you're right. I think it's partly because it's probably no surprise, too, that Medicare came around in the 60s. And traditional health insurance started paying more and more for stuff, and now we have a chronic disease problem. Probably not a not a surprise because if it's gonna if if people's health care is gonna cost them nothing. Now remember, nothing is for free. It costs them a lot. Um, but if it's gonna not cost them directly, then they have no incentive to get healthy. And I think that's why we have the, the you know the real epidemic in this country is obesity. Oh, yeah. And even with this COVID-19 situation, it's become more and more apparent that obesity is one of the highest risk factors or comorbidity. Metabolic syndrome and obesity is what's driving a lot of the deaths, especially the younger deaths that have occurred with COVID-19. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if your body is already struggling to to just pump blood to your extremities because you're 100 pounds overweight, um, you get anything that knocks your immune system down and it's going to be a struggle to stay alive. So we shouldn't really be that surprised. So being healthy in the first place is the, our best defense. So we talked a little bit. So the, uh, number two was import RX drugs. I'm a, I'm not going to say I'm an open borders guy by any means necessarily because that is one of the duties of Congress stated in the Constitution is to protect our borders. But I do believe in fair trade, not necessarily free trade, but I believe in fair trade. And I think if we do have a free market system, if we did, which we don't in healthcare, and unfortunately, most of the countries that we would import from don't have a free market either. Like you say, they have price controls. So I don't know how much importing drugs from other countries is going to necessarily help. You know, with other goods and services that are in a free market, whether it be... Um, you know, clothing or, or um, you know, oil or things like that. I think it's a little bit different, although oil is not a free market either because of OPEC. That's a whole other topic. Um, so I what go on to say that I, I do believe in the state's rights to trade freely as well and not, not necessarily to ha have to ask uh, permission from the federal government. You know, if the state of Washington wanted to trade with Canada or China or whoever, they should have that freedom to do that. So um, I think a lot of our issues do come because we try to make a one size fits all federal system for things. And so if we allowed more, if we had more decentralization in states, if one state decided to go into a universal healthcare model that I, I would advocate for their right to do that, 
and then other states, you know, follow a more free market, then we can at least see that, you know, state X doesn't work and state Y does. Right. I I think that's all about states' rights and individuals' rights. And if you look at, you know, the Bill of Rights um, in, in, you know, number 10, it's, you know, if it's not expressed in the Constitution for the federal government to do it, then it should be left up to the states and the people. And I don't think we use that right enough. Um, and the FTA, for instance, I believe, you know, is a huge organization. It's, cent- it's a central organization. You could, ar- you could make a very valid argument that they've created monopolies with these drug companies, and that's really what has one of the things that has driven prices so high is there's not a lot of competition in in the drug market because the FDA basically picks winners and losers because it takes a billion dollars to to take a drug to market. Not many companies can afford to do that. Exactly. So um, the secret deals we talked about the the kickback between the PBMs and the drug companies. Um, did you ex- can you expand on that a little bit um, more, um, James? That's number three on the executive order. Well, it, it follows, you know, something that we've talked a lot about at the Free Market Medical Association in about pharmacy benefit managers in, that are non-transparent. Let's, let's make that clear because the biggest problem is that 85% of the prescription drugs currently go through three PBMs, uh, the major ones, Express Scripts, uh, Caremark, and Optum RX, and those those three major PBMs are very closely tied to the major insurance carriers. And so they control most of the market, but there are transparent pharmacy benefit managers who act like, you know, they are third party administrators essentially for prescription drugs that help a, you know, um, an insurance plan supposedly that's, that's why they're there is to help save money for the insurance plan on prescription drugs. And so in a free market, the middlemen are not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of times people see, hear the word middleman and they think, well, that's automatically a bad thing. But there, there is a place for a middleman to come in and provide a service to an employer in a free market perspective. And we do have members of the Free Market Medical Association that are very transparent pharmacy benefit managers that uh, are transparent in how they're paid and they actually do work on behalf of the employer and they, they are paid by the employer a per employee per month basis. Uh, and they don't have all these secret deals that they're making. So what we're addressing here is the fact that most of the, the pharmacy benefit managers out there, the larger ones in particular, they have uh, these uh, rebates that they claim they pass along to the um, the individual, primarily the employer that they're working for, uh, but the employer doesn't nec- doesn't know what those rebates are because so the lack of transparency allows them to then work with the insurance carrier, very much like the hospitals work with the insurance carriers to create a high list price so the insurance carrier can claim to have to provide a discount off of that list price. Well, that's what the pharmacy benefit managers do with prescription drugs. They, they have an incentive for the list price on that drug to be higher and higher so they can make money off of the, the rebate. Yeah, and realize too that in those pharmacy benefit managers, not only are insurance companies involved, but some are either, 
wholly owned or partially owned. I don't know the company which with which they're related um, off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, obviously Walgreens and 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 um, you know. CVS. Chain pharmacies and CVS, they obviously have a stake in the game. So a lot of times the rebates you're talking about, you know, Walgreens or whatever, XYZ, chain pharmacy will get that rebate. Um, but it's interesting because if the patient goes to, you know, a pharmacy that's not owned by Walgreens, the rebate still goes to Walgreens. It doesn't go to the pharmacy that's filling the prescription. I mean, so, yeah. and, and that's not transparent at all. People don't, people have usually no clue about that. They just think, oh, my copay was $10 and they have no idea where the rest of that money went. Well, just like in the, the other areas of healthcare, uh, the big hospital systems have taken over independent primary care physicians there's really, it seems like there's been a concerted effort over the years to put the independent pharmacists out of business and consolidate everything under these major uh, pharmacist, pharmacy groups and that really drive the prices higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I totally agree. Um, same thing has happened with physicians and pharmacists. They, they, you know, there's big hospital groups that want to own physicians. There's big chain pharmacies that want to own all the pharmacies. Um, here's... You know, from a from a free market standpoint, um, the federal government they love that. You know, because instead of having to control five thousand doctors, they just got to control five or six big hospital groups that own all the doctors in the nation. I mean, and it really is that simple. Um, because most of those big hospital groups, you know, sixty to seventy percent of all their funding, all their fees are based on government programs. So if they don't have the government, they usually don't exist. Yeah, we'd like to talk a lot about socialism and socialized medicine. And I think if you talk to a lot of people about, you know, their view of healthcare, and you said, would you like socialized medicine? Most, a lot of people would say, no, socialized medicine is not good. But I think our biggest problem and something that we basically already have is that we have medical fascism. I mean, there's, there's a corporate model where the government is in control of everything and we have an appearance of a free market under government control and that that's that's more of the fascist uh model and that's a corp- corporatist fascist model of of healthcare and i think we have we're really at risk of moving more in that direction as a result of the response to this uh covid-19 crisis i think that the big hospital systems are getting bailed out and will probably get more bailout funds. There was a report recently where HCA uh, Healthcare had 39% profit in the second quarter, even though their revenue was down by 19%. It's because they got so much of the Care Act, CARES Act wow. um, bailout money. So the big hospital systems, big insurance companies, uh, they're, they're all going to get federal bailouts. And I think the small, just like in the rest of the economy, the small business owner, the restaurant you know, owners are suffering and the big, you know, corporate Walmart, Amazon, they, they are profiting through this. Yeah. Home Depot, Lowe's, they never had to close. Yeah. So I think that's the real danger going forward is that um, there'll be more consolidation, more opportunities for the hospitals to, to purchase, you know, primary care physician clinics, 
um, more of the independent pharmacists to go out of business. So I think what we have to do uh, with the Free Market Medical Association is to promote, you know, the free and independent people out there, whether it's uh, self-insured employers who are cash buyers that, you know, we're helping to educate them to work with a an independent consultant or a consultant benefit advisor that will teach them how to bypass the big PBMs and find one of the the transparent ones or bypass PBMs altogether. Yeah, uh, and we we had one on our episode. I don't remember what episode number, but Jason Larson out of Yakima that works with Assurance Healthcare. His father-in-law is actually a direct primary care um, doctor and uh, runs a very successful practice there. And, um, you know, so those... That is the key. You're right, James, is we need to get the word out. I talked to a physician yesterday who's in Washington State over in Paulsbo, and he's going to be on our podcast Thursday. He's a direct primary care um, physician, and, um, you know, he's through this COVID stuff. He's, it, it, you know, it, it can get kind of depressing when, you know, you, you see all these government mandates and stuff coming down the down the pipe. And what's really depressing to a lot of us that are independent um, in independent, not just in our medical practices or pharmacy practices, but just want to be independent overall is it's frustrating how, you know, especially in the medical system, how some of the big clinics and some of the big hospitals, they're supporting further and further lockdowns. And I think the only, the only reason they would support that, even when the numbers don't support it, as far as people in the hospital and people getting sick and people dying, um, is, because they're just looking for a new bailout. I mean, I, I really honestly think what else, what else would, why else would they want to um, keep extending this? Why wouldn't they want to get on with regular life? Well, think of their uncompensated care that nonprofit hospitals get bailed out on a daily basis, basically. Or they, their bailout under the uncompensated care system is that they claim that they're losing all this money because they they don't get what their list price is, which we know is a phony list price. And so they're bailed out with tax breaks on a daily basis. This is just uncompensated care on steroids. They're able to say, look at all this money we lost during the yep. COVID-19 crisis. It's it's such a racket. It is such a racket. And I've been on a, on a hospital board, our local public hospital board, and it is just, you know, it, their uncompensated care, their charity care, well, they bill $50,000 and they write off forty because the original price should have been ten anyway. And then that means they gave $40,000 for the charity care. I yeah, that's just not how that really works. It's it's the most funky accounting I've never seen in any other industry. I mean, that kind of accounting write-offs every month. You know, they'd write off all this money supposedly. It's like, well, but you never really got paid that, so you didn't write it off. You didn't get paid that because you overcharged in the first place. Yeah. So what we know from a free market standpoint is that prices will go down if there's more competition. Obviously, that's just a natural. Um, so. What we need are more entrepreneurs. And so the best thing the government can do is to get out of the way to allow more competition to come in. And that's why a lot of people are pushing for price transparency under the belief that with uh, transparent pricing, then that will allow more uh, competitors to enter the market, which 
I believe that fundamentally is true, but at the same time, if we don't remove more of the restrictions on comp on entrepreneurship, then you know transparency is meaningless if there are only three places for right. you to shop. Yeah, I mean yeah. we have transparency in higher education. We know what the prices are, but the prices are still ridiculous. Why? Not because just because of transparency, but because it's almost impossible for people to be entrepreneurial and start a new university. Yeah, because there's so many barriers to entry. And I, and I think that's what, um, you know, certificate of needs and licensing and things like that in the healthcare industry have really, really prevented um, you know, a free market. And I think maybe that's what those hospitals and big clinics are pushing for. They've got, they've got the certificate of need. They've got the license. So if they can make sure that everybody else goes out of business, then they still have their license so they can um, essentially charge what they want. And there's not, there's not a free market. Yeah. One of the great things that Dr. Keith Smith at the surgery center of Oklahoma has said several times that has stuck with me is that he says that Medicare doesn't need to be reformed. Medicare needs a competitor. And that's really essentially true. If you think about it, uh, the biggest problem with Medicare is that there's no competition for senior care. And so right. they have, they've eliminated that all competition in the area of uh, care for senior citizens. Yeah. And you look at even, you know, even health sharing ministries with which Janet and I are a part of, um, you know, health sharing ministries don't cover you primarily after you're eligible for Medicare. And that is just a perfect example of, you know, Medicare controls the market so they can basically charge whatever they want. Because um, even something in a free market like health sharing ministries, which I really support and I really promote, um, and, and they're not just faith-based anymore. There's, a, there's some of them that are coming out that are non-faith-based. Um, I really support them, but you look at them um, and they do. They have, uh, when you are Medicare eligible, you have them as a secondary and that's sad to me because that means when I'm Medicare eligible, I have to basically um, use Medicare, and that <laughs> that's got to change. I have a six-step solution in my book about how to fix some of these things in healthcare. There's a six-step solution. Of course, it all starts with you, the viewer and the listener, um, to be educated and empowered and realize that you're in charge of your own healthcare. Not only to control your health, like James and I were talking about, about these lifestyle diseases, but also pricing. So don't be afraid to call a doctor, to call a hospital, call a surgery center. Um, call us, call Mosaic Professional Pharmacy. We will let you know. We work with people all the time on where to go for cash pricing, where to go for good service um, at a very competitive price um, from primary care to, um, to specialty stuff. So don't be afraid to call us. One of the fixes too in the book is, this is a tough one, but I do honestly believe it, I think the only way, James, that we can really fix the system is Medicare's got to go away. That's really the only way. I know that's a big, big ass. That's number six. That's going to be the toughest one in my book. But and then people say, wait, wait, wait. Well, gosh, I don't want to pay for my own health care. You know, you know, it's it's expensive. No, it's expensive because somebody else is paying the bill. You get the federal government out of it. And the prices would go down dramatically. Look at my example of prescription drugs. Prescription drugs weren't 
expensive until Medicare got involved in them. So, and if you ask your congressman or you talk to your senator, federal senator, federal congressman, that, oh, well, we can't get rid of Medicare. I mean, it's, it's here to stay. I mean, well, here's what I give them an example of. We got rid of prohibition. Why can't we get rid of Medicare? I know that sounds like a crazy analogy, but there was an amendment to the Constitution to get rid of prohibition because it didn't work. Well, well guess what? I don't think Medicare is working. It's not controlling the price of price of, of health care very well at all. I think there's overutilization, and I think there's definitely overpricing. So the only way to really fix these things is a free market solution. Individuals decide where to go and at what price. James. I think fundamentally people realize that. I'm not optimistic that Medicare will go away, but I think that's why, you know, there's obviously they've introduced Medicare Advantage plans, which have some, you know, pretense of private. So that's that's what Republicans tend to do when they they look at they call talk about the free market. They say, well, we want to privatize something, which just means we're going to outsource it to the biggest uh, political um, <laughs> donor <laughs> donors that we can right. find. And that's that's uh, the free market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there were a bit, I remember when there was talk about privatizing Social Security yeah. you know, 20 years ago or something. But the, the idea was that we would not really privatize, you know, and allow people to choose how they would spend their money. We would just, you know, the, if we ever privatize Social Security, that just means they would pick, you know, two or three major investment companies to manage yep. social security versus, you know, having the market, the market do it. I, I think going back to what I said about Dr. Smith's thing, Medicare having a competitor, it might be difficult for Medicare to have a competitor, but I think there could be some entrepreneurial ways that people could invest and save for their own healthcare. It's just like homeschooling, for instance. I mean, as a homeschooler, I, have to pay taxes for everyone else's school, even though my yep. kids don't use that system. So in a, in a perfect world or an ideal world, even if you know government school existed, I would be able to take my portion of that and spend it the way I want. So being able to opt out of Social Security or Medicare might be a, you know, an interim you know, a step, but beyond that, I think there has to be a movement of people that say, and I guess there probably already are people that, you know, they don't want to use Medicare or uh, they feel like they, they would find better doctors if they didn't use Medicare. So they figure out ways to and save money to pay cash for their healthcare, regardless of their age. And yeah. And it, the most people, more people that do that, the more Medicare correct. becomes irrelevant. Correct. And that's why in my book, I listed the six steps. And one of the steps is, you know, consumers shop for doctors, pharmacies, and um, surgery centers that don't take Medicare. And, and they're, they're cash solutions. And you can get a lot better pricing. And they're out there. I mean, people don't realize, but they're out there. You get a lot better pricing and a lot better service. Don't miss out on our episode Thursday because we're going to have a DPC physician on from Paulsville, Washington, um, Peter Lehman. Um, and you can just really find out how inexpensive it is to have 24-hour access to a doctor um, for a monthly fee. It's it's incredibly inexpensive. Um, yeah, so free market is I, – I, I push for that. I'm not a big – I should have said this at the first – I'm not a big believer in executive orders necessarily and especially in government intervention. 
because a lot of times the the government like we've talked about the government's one that caused this problem in the first place with with high high price of prescription drugs so i am always leery of a government solution um because usually it involves more government um intervention and that's what caused the problem in the first place so um hopefully this will be better than that so well i think the the sentiment is good if you know if nothing else i think it's good that this is bringing the issue of a lack of transparency and prescription drug prices uh, to the surface. Um, I think the ultimate goal is to have more individuals and specifically employers to basically follow the same tact. If you think about it, this is the government saying, look, we pay all this money for these services and we are going to dictate how much we're going to pay. I really think employers could do the same thing. If you're a a self-funded, self-insured employer, you basically write your own executive order and say, we're not going to pay you, Mr. PBM, this money unless we actually get the rebates or we'll go somewhere else. We'll drop our contract with you, with the insurance carrier, if, if they're a fully insured employer. But I think, I think the sentiment is good. And employers could take that um, that autonomy back and uh, use it to their advantage. Well, and on the show, we like to educate and empower individuals because um, I just love people being free. I love myself being free. I love liberty and realize that an employee you know, an employee can negotiate those things too. So I think employees should start driving some of this and say, you know, you know, Mr. Employer, this $1,500 a month that you were paying for my health insurance that I don't believe in, I never use, I think it's a ripoff. Piggybacking on that, James, imagine if we took the money that we pay into Medicare personally and our employers pay into Medicare I, I did the math one time. This was a few years ago. Making a very modest income. This was like 20-some years ago. Um, if you put that money aside, by the time you're 65 years old, um, you would have like $2 million. And think yeah. about that. Most people are not going to use $2 million in their health care. Wouldn't you rather have the $2 million rather than paying into Medicare? I mean, that alone, I mean, that that's a definition of a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, Medicare, really- as we've talked about before, Medicare is just Social Security 2.0. Yeah, that's all it is. And that's one of the fixes in my book is really we have to roll back Social Security because in the 30s when FDR passed Social Security, that's what gave the power to the federal government to pass Medicare in the 60s. Was It was piggybacked on the Social Security Act. And that's – we just went down a, we went down a yeah, really FDR bad road of socialism. planned on basically creating a Medicare program, but he died in office, so it was just delayed – uh, about 40 years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, James, we're about out of time. What are your parting words for today's episode? Well, I just appreciate you having us on. We appreciate the work you're doing on behalf of the free market medical movement. And we just appreciate getting the word out. We want people to pay attention to things like this as they happen. If an executive order uh, comes out, you know, we want you to know what's going on. Unfortunately, with all the other things in the news, I'm guessing that this executive order just sort of got pushed and very few people really even know about it. So it's good to at least have the information out there to realize what's going on and, you know, how 
there's nuance to it. There's good things about it. And there's ways that we can take it. And if we apply it in the real free market, then uh, things will get better as the free market grows. Absolutely. Amen to that. I appreciate what you're doing too, James. And we are so excited to, to um, go to uh, the annual conference this year. So bummed that it got canceled. Um, I'm, I'm hoping next year we can go because I'm really excited for that. Just be around like-minded people. I, I really get excited when I'm around like-minded people. And, and then I realize that I'm not the only crazy one. I mean, we've been being called crazy for oh since 2002 when we when we stopped billing insurance. And I tell you, we're not going to look back because we are liberated. We take we feel we take better care of our patients at a at a at a much better price. So, thank you for being on, James. Don't miss our show Thursday. We have Peter Lehman on. Um, he's a direct primary care physician out of Paulsville, Washington. And Monday, you're going to love this, James. Do not miss out on our episode Monday. We are going to have Spike Cohen on, Libertarian um, candidate for vice president, running with Joe Jorgensen. I'm super, super excited about that. Um, I met him a few months ago through Anthony Welty. Uh, when I was, he's running for insurance commissioner in Washington State, and I, I met uh, Spike on one of his uh, podcasts. And Spike, I tell you, he, when I heard him talk about healthcare, I'm like, wow, Spike, you could have wrote my book. So I'm super excited to have Spike on. And don't miss out on that. And James, thank you for being on. You've been in Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. We will see you Thursday. Thanks.